Welcome, everyone. I'm here with Bill Crawford, uh, who used to be a uh, stealth bomber pilot and uh, uh, still a friend. He didn't used to be a friend. He's still a friend. Yeah, we're still friends. Before I start asking Bill some questions, I I just I want to share something with the audience. So there's this book that is literally about our business school class. Okay. And uh, there's a character in this book who uh, we shall name Bob. I remember Bob. Okay. So I'm going to read two things. I had been placed, and this is the author. I had been placed between two students from the military. To my right was Bob, who had flown the stealth bomber. I had met him during analytics, and he frightened me. (laughs) He was short and trim with strawberry blonde hair and pale blue eyes. He had four children and ate his lunch from a Winnie the Pooh plastic box that he brought from home. That's true. (laughs) He seemed humorless and resolute. Just the man you'd like to have flying billions of dollars worth of military hardware. He had come to business school because he had grown tired of Air Force life and wanted greater opportunities for himself and his family. He was 35 and had little time to waste. Now that's, that's, I'm not going to leave the audience with that. Yeah. Um, Well, that's, that's what's funny is it's, there's, how do I put this? It's a hundred percent accurate from the author's perspective. But uh, he he misread the person, I think. It, it, it was fun. It's fun to hear uh, how he describes Bob, I guess. Okay, so here's this is from uh, page 209 toward the end. During my time at HBS, I often ran into Bob, my first semester section member or section neighbor. All my early fears about him had dissolved. Behind the glacial Air Force exterior, was a warm, funny man with an elegant mind and a keen ambition to do the best for his family. When we talked about our futures and the opportunities presented by HBS, we would always remind each other that the class of 2006 was not our peer group. Their average age on arrival was 27. They had not done the same things as we had. In many cases, all we had in common with them was HBS. We were not the classic HBS product, and if we tried to compete with those who were, we would be rejected. As we struggled to figure out our route back into real life, we had that to bear in mind. Staring up at the curve would kill us. So I knew you would cringe at the first one. So I'm like, I know he said something that would absolve that initial uh, impression, which I think, which I thought was actually pretty funny knowing you. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, cause you and I met, we met after Philip and I met, cause Philip, so first of all, I think that for your your viewers, um, I'm Bob, right? So like, we got just to make sure that's that's not ambiguous. Um, right. Philip sat to my left, and we sat together the whole. So you know how the first semester goes. You're we, we sat together for every class every day for the first three three and a half months of school, and uh, and it, it's funny to think that he thought I was humorless. You know, I think that's kind of a, but I mean. I, I think Look, the just, Winnie the Pooh, the Winnie the Pooh lunchbox, I'm like, dead on, dead yes. on, 100%, 100%. Yeah. You know, um, I'm, I'm a little bit sad to report that uh, I had that Winnie the Pooh lunchbox when I was flying the F-16. So I, I got it in probably 1998. And uh, I had it for my lunch all the way until about a year ago when my dog chewed it up. So um, I've been using that same <laughs> Winnie the Pooh little um, soup container for, I don't know, 25 years. And uh, <laughs> um, no, no one ever made fun of me for it, you know, and-, and uh, Except and I, in a book sold to thousands of people. I don't know how many copies that sold. I hope it, I hope it did really well. You know, I hope look, uh, look, uh, to, 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 Phil, to Philip Delves, Broads of, to Philip, right? Yeah. It is the most accurate journalistic account that I've ever seen. Now that's not yeah. necessarily- that's not necessarily high praise to be to be to be honest, <laughs> because I hold I heard I hold journalists in like lower esteem than politicians. Mm-hmm. But 
Um, it is the most accurate account because I, 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 you know, when I, I've read it, I'm like, yep, that's true. That's true. Yep. That's accurate. That's accurate. Yeah. And I know a lot of our classmates didn't like it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there were a couple of people that weren't portrayed, I think in a way that, that, um, that reflected their best, you know, and I, I, I think that's, that's unfortunate, but my personal experience with the book was that it was like reliving the best parts of business school. And, you know, some of the chicanery and some of the nonsense that goes on there. But I don't think it was written in a way that that shed a negative light on the school, although the school felt that it, it you know, it was kind of a, okay, well, um, that I thought it was great. It was a really nice way to to uh, portray an immersive experience at the Harvard Business mm-hmm. School. And, and uh, you know, probably, you know, if anyone who watches this and disagrees, I'll probably take some heat, but. But uh, I appreciated what Philip wrote. Yeah, look, I, I did too. But and to be fair, though, right? He he actually had a fit, like toward the end, he had a very positive portrayal of all the former military officers. Yeah, yeah, and I think right. people. So people who look at the military from the outside, it's easy to to be frightened. It's kind of funny because even like I I work at a church university now as a as a professor, and. Um, even now, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm Mr. Mellow. I'm Mr. Let it go. Easy going. You know, I just, but, uh, but my colleagues have mentioned from time to time that they, they're still intimidated or a little bit frightened by me. I'm like, I, I don't understand where that comes from, but I think it has I, I, have a, to do... I, I have a theory. Well, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I, mm-hmm. I, I have a theory. And then you're probably going to say, you know, I don't know. I don't know what you're going to say, but um, my theory behind that is military culture is extremely direct. And there's no there's no time to, uh, you know, put a bow on things, and it makes you and every you know the organizations you run much more efficient. But you know, people just don't, especially people who are good politicians and like to hide and obfuscate things. They do not like that sort of leadership style. Yeah, and they shouldn't. But you know what? Like, they're the problem. We're not. I feel like that's that, that's fairly accurate. The um, the thing that I I think that that's I, I definitely have more of a no nonsense approach to problem solving, and much more com- comfortable with conflict. You know, I embrace conflict, yeah. and it doesn't mean that I and I do initiate it from time to time, but it doesn't mean I'm looking to be contentious. You know, I'm not looking for a fight, but I but I am looking for uh, a process that allows the best outcome and right. that normally when there's disagreement conflict has to ensue and when you avoid it you don't get a good outcome and so and i think that's something that, that that i still carry with me but as far as like my my you know i'm not gruff you know i, I feel like i'm a lot more uh, understanding empathetic kind thoughtful all the things you would all the things you would want in somebody um to get i've actually conflict. become i've become a lot less that way yeah, because because people <laughs> in business tend to solve for themselves and not for the organization, and and I get I'm much quicker to to, to kind of throw that out the window. But because yeah, yeah. uh, because I, I came in, I would come into it thinking that uh, everybody was out for the better part of the organization. I was consistently disappointed, and after a while, you're like, you know what? Like I was giving all these people the benefit of the doubt, but they're solving for themselves. Full stop. Not all, yeah. of them, not all, not yeah. all, but like yeah. the people that I typically get gruff with. Yeah, enough, enough to kind of you know make you bristle. Yeah, so I've I I still feel like um, yeah, um, the the way the organization works, and then also I tend to have I'm a, I'm an intense person. Um, I get really focused, and and when I'm intense, it seems intimidating. I just don't read that in myself. You know, I'm, I'm focused. I'm trying to think. I'm processing, and uh, and the expressions that come across, uh, especially if you know I have a military history, yeah. seem seem a little intimidating. But I tried to temper that a little bit over the last twenty years. Yeah, I I, I try to too, but I just yeah, you could take Sean out of the army, but you can't take the army out of Sean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank, All right. thanks, so, for, thanks for that trip down memory lane. That was fun. Yeah, I was worried you're going to hear the first part. You're like, oh, my God. <laughs> no, no. I, you know, even when I read it the first time, I thought, that's funny. 
it, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, uh, I got to work on that. <laughs> it's like getting well, a one star review in my business. I'm like, okay, well, yeah, they're not wrong. Well, well, like when I read it, there were aspects of it that I thought were accurate. But the 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 when I first met you, I didn't, um, you didn't come across as humorless to me at all. So I was I was surprised that was his first take on you um yeah. but the, like the winnie the pooh lunchbox like the <laughs> like the family man can in you know in contrast to the you know kind of stealth bomber like that juxtaposition right. i'm like that is dead on like like bill is the <laughs> kindest nicest like one of the kindest nicest people i know yeah. and so like his read was definitely a little bit off in the beginning but there are parts in there that just <laughs> without saying anything about like your personality, it's just that juxtaposition of like stealth bomber pilot and Winnie the Pooh lunchbox or box. <laughs> I, I'm like, yep, that's Bill. Yep. And yeah. And then, the, but to his credit at the end, right. He like the, the stuff that he said about you at the end, I think made, made up for it. It made for a good, a good read. So. Yeah. Philip and I are still friends. It's, you know, we, we don't talk very often, but but uh, occasionally we we connect and and uh, we get Christmas cards from each other. Okay, now we're probably like five minutes in, and people are like, "I came, I clicked on this thing so I could like see and learn about yeah. a stuff bomber pilot." So yes. I, I'm going to ask you the most open of open questions, and then mm-hmm. and then I'm going to stop interrupting you like I, I have been doing. But again, I don't know if you can do that. I mean, give it your best shot here. You know, <laughs> try. I'll try. What? How did you become a stealth bomber pilot? This is uh, so so. Ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to fly. I, I don't know, I don't know when that started in me, but you know, I remember in the third grade uh, checking out books about astronauts and space, and um, I remember I don't know how old I was, maybe eight. Star Wars came out, you know, and we had Luke Skywalker and Han Solo flying their, you know intergalactic spaceships and I just had this dream my whole life of flying and uh my dad was in the navy so we we lived near uh some navy um stations and you'd see the f-14s flying over and doing their training and so I think I just had this uh long 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 term dream to fly um in fact uh, when I was nine or ten the Blue Angels came to an airport about four miles from our house. And part of their routine at the time, they flew right over our house. I mean, like literally a couple hundred feet. And so it just seemed like this was, uh, flying was something that was calling me my whole life. I, uh, I served a mission for my church right out of high school. And then I got admitted to BYU, um, Brigham Young University in Utah. And I didn't have a lot of role models in my life who went to college. So I, I was kind of charting um, a little little uh, uncharted course for myself. Uh, in fact, I showed up there with enough money to pay one semester's tuition and a couple of months of rent, and that was it. And um, I, somehow I, I stayed continuously enrolled, financed the whole thing, got my pilot's license, um, I understood the criteria for being selected as a pilot. I just worked really hard. So physical fitness, academic fitness, leadership skills, and uh, eventually got selected for pilot training. Uh, went, that's a year-long year long deal. Now, now, when you went to BYU, did you do ROTC or did you just self-finance oh. the No, yeah. Education? So uh, at the time, I was too old for a scholarship. So I actually paid for my own school, even though I did do ROTC. Um, ended up, uh, getting, so, so, oh gosh, probably two and a half years in, um, they had peace broke out in the world and all of a sudden the air force was cutting back. And, um, the year that I got there, I think 21 cadets got pilot slots at BYU, not world. This is just BYU. The, then a year or two later, there were just huge budget cuts and the air force had a glut of pilots and they decided they weren't going to train too many more. And they cut the number of slots for ROTC to 100. This was like for the whole country. So there's 140 ROTC detachments, 100 pilots. And this is going to sound wrong when I say it, but 
you know, one of the guys told me, hey, look, you're probably not going to be a pilot because there's only 100 slots. And I said, gosh, you had me worried for a second there. You know, I, as long as there's one, I'll be okay. <laughs> but I told him, I said, as long as there's one, I'll be okay. And I uh, ended up getting a pilot slot. In fact, um, at BYU, even though there, there were only 100, five of us got pilot slots. We were very competitive. Uh, we understood the criteria that the Air Force is looking for. And, uh, and, and we were competitive. And so we, we uh, got picked up. I ended up going to Shepard Air Force Base, which is a kind of, um, it's, it's a high probability of getting a fighter if you graduate. And so from there, um, flew the F-16 for a couple of years, loved the F-16, loved, loved flying that airplane. It's just a great machine. Um, I love the teamwork dynamic of it. Um, I didn't love that we were gone five months out of the year. You know, it was like it was a um, heavy deployment job. And uh, the Air Force was saying, hey, look, your next assignment is most likely going to be an unaccompanied tour to Korea. And um, right about that same time, the stealth, the stealth community was, was hiring younger pilots. So I just gotten my four ship flight lead upgrade. And... Uh, and they were looking for younger crew because they had, you know, the senior crews all flying that brand new sparkly airplane and they needed to start working down their experience level. And I just timed it just right. So I applied and got hired to that. It was a, a four year controlled tour, minimal deployments. I mean, I, I what's a controlled tour mean? Um, you know, I don't know. I just said it. I just said it. Um, what it means is at least the way I, the way I am using it here. It meant that I wasn't going to have to be reassigned for at least four years. Okay. So as a military officer, usually you can expect 18 to 36 months in a station before you move. And this was going to be a nice four year. And some guys had done six or eight. And I just wanted a good family life. So, um, so I was looking for some stability in my location and, and for my kids. And this was going to provide that. It also just happened to be, at the time, the, the most prestigious um, flying program that the Air Force had. And so... And probably uh, in the world. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, well, I don't want to, you know, there are people who've done some really prestigious things, but this, this was up there. And, uh, and just because they were looking for younger people, I happened to be... Um, meet the criteria they were looking for and applied and, and got in. So uh, flew the T-38 as an instructor for a year to kind of build, build a little more experience and then went into the stealth bomber and just had a, a really great time. Really appreciate the, the time that I had flying with those guys. But that's, that was my path. What, what, is exactly, what exactly is a T-38 and how is it related to a stealth bomber? Oh, so uh, the stealth bomber, very expensive to operate. And I might be saying things a little wrong. So take everything I say with a grain of salt. I'll, I'll give you the truth as best I can, but my memory is not always that sharp. I think it costs about $20,000 an hour to operate a stealth bomber. So we, we go up for an average training mission of four hours. What's $20,000, that's $80,000? That's a staggering number if you think about it. $80,000 to uh, do one training sortie for two pilots. So uh, in, in order to keep the pilots proficient, but also um, keep the budget under control, they have the T-38. T-38 costs, I don't know, two, three, four thousand dollars an hour to operate. And uh, the pilots will fly in that. It's a, it's a twin engine, uh, short wing, fast airplane. You'll see um, the most, most common um, view of these would be on Top Gun, those the, the black MiGs from the from the um, early days, those were um, F5s, but they're the same airframe as a T38. So you you can see um, that that's what the airplane looks like, and there's just two seats in it, and you just go out and do aerobatics or low-level flying or formation or or navigation, whatever you whatever your whatever your heart desires in that airplane. So we did. How, I was in. The, go ahead. Um, and then uh, did you? So did you? Did you ultimately spend four years as a stealth bomber pilot or longer? No, yeah, let's think. So I got there in 2000. It was about four years, yeah. Um, it would have been three as a stealth pilot because the first year was just T-38. 
and then uh, and then upgraded to stealth pilot, and then a year later, mission commander, and uh, and and then you know flew in the Iraq conflict, and then a few months after that, um, took a different direction. And that's how we met. Um, yeah, yeah. How how many pilots are on that thing? It's like two, like co two co co pilots, right? There are two pilots. They call it a mission commander and a pilot just because they they don't want to say co-pilot because that would make one of them feel bad. Yeah, that so, sounds like Air Force. That sounds like yeah, Air Force. You know, well, Air Force, I think they do have pilots and co-pilots in other aircraft, but they they wanted this one to they wanted us to feel special. So they called us pilots and mission commanders. And how many real world missions did you fly in the stealth bomber? Uh, combat, actual combat missions, um, one, just one, but the, uh, the gosh, I don't know the actual numbers, but I think the average stealth pilot, like you probably like half of them fly a combat mission, half of them don't. And I can't remember the last conflict that the stealth was involved in, but, uh, but I, I think that it's been a while since they've seen active combat. Even in the Iraq, well, the beginning of the Iraq War, they did, but anything subsequent? Yeah, so let's, I can think of, um, I know they were involved in Kosovo. I know they were involved in Afghanistan uh, in 2000, 9-11-2001, right? And then they were involved in um, Iraq in 2003. And then the only other one I remember is um, some limited action in uh, Libya. When uh, when the U.S. Uh, went after, I think they went after uh, Muammar Gaddafi, but I can't remember for sure. Uh, but I and think how, there was some some news on uh, Li- Libya engagements there. Otherwise, I don't think there have been. I, I'm not aware of any. I can't remember any right now. Huh. And and why? How is the stealth bomber program related to the stealth fighter program? Is it like the same group of pilots, or is it? No, no, no. The, so, and it depends on what you mean by stealth fighter, because that term is sort of um, it's taken on different meanings over time. The original stealth fighter, the F-117, uh, there were some people who flew that flying the B-2 bomber, but typically, you know, it's just like I came from the F-16. It was just another, another program, completely separate. Um, now they'll call the F-22 or the F-35 are also considered stealth fighters. And the, the programs run independent of each other, but they do coordinate, they do train together. So they'll go out and, and, uh, and I, I, I don't actually, I could say I can't talk about the nature of the missions, but that's true because I really don't know a lot about them. <laughs> well, and, I mean, what, what, yeah, that's, that's actually a good question because you never really, which is kind of odd. You, you, I mean, you hear about the F-22 and you, the F-35. The F-35 is specifically, it's usually in the context of the hangar queen that it is. Um, oh, gosh. Don't get me started on that. I don't know a lot about it, but it's, I feel like it was, I feel like we we, we could have done a better job with that program. Yeah, well, but you never hear about, like, you don't hear, you hear about those two all the time, but you never really hear about the Nighthawk. Like what sorts of missions it it does? What um, and that was the one that was um, that was the airframe that was shot down over Kosovo, right? Or was uh, that a bomber? I, I think it's. I, I can say that we lost an F one seventeen in Kosovo because that was public news. But as far as like how, how it was lost, why it was lost, or anything okay. else, I really okay. probably can't talk about it. But um, they they basically retired those airplanes. That's why you don't hear about them anymore. They've been retired for a long time. And uh, they, they, they both, the, the B-2 and the F-117 both rely on stealth uh, t- techniques to avoid radar detection, but um, they, they do it differently. I'll just put it that way. So there were, there were different um, engineering requirements and different constraints that led to different way of, of planning and, and flying the two airframes. Okay. And <clears throat> in terms of like the, let's talk a little bit about the mission that you, that you ran. 
Mm-hmm. Talk me through that. Like, how did you train for it? How did you prepare for it? And then what was it like when you ultimately executed? So we, so we, when you first start flying the stealth bomber, you, you start, they start doing some, um, uh, long duration mission training. And, and your first step into that is a 24 hour simulator. So imagine getting in a simulator and just flying the thing for 24 hours. And, uh, and you know, it's kind of interesting because there's no real, I mean, there might be a console operator up there, but I think at some point during the night, it's just you and your crewmate in the simulator flying airplane and you're, so um, then you do, uh, you'll do a couple of longer missions. Um, I did a 24 hour live weapon drop in um, Nevada. I did a 20 hour, and I can't remember if this is before or after the Iraq conflict, but I did a 20 hour mission where we took off out of Missouri. We flew west up the coast of, off the west coast of, of uh, Oregon and Washington. Um, we dropped some bombs on the target range um, in the snow in Alaska, mm. uh, flew directly over Mount McKinley, and then headed down the Aleutian Islands at sunset and landed in Guam the next morning and went snorkeling in 80 degree water. So it was kind of a, I mean, I'll never forget that day, you know, like that's a pretty interesting day. Um, and then the, the, the specifics for the Iraq conflict the 2003, we actually, um, as a group, mapped out the targets that we were going to hit. And I think there were six airplanes, three from, uh, I'll just, uh, I don't want to say too much. If there was six, I don't know. I, by the way, probably most of what I'm saying is just, all of what I'm saying is fine, but I just don't want to cross any lines. It's been so long. Yeah. There were six, six airplanes involved. Uh, in fact, oh, I sometimes on this wall have a picture of that first night with all six airplanes kind of hidden in there. There's one big one and then several that are kind of off to the side. There were six airplanes, six B-2s, of course, hundreds of allied aircraft involved, but six B-2s in particular. And they mapped out a um, an array of the targets in the computer and then laid that over uh, a city in the American Midwest. And then um, multiple times would plan, uh, fly those the routes exactly like they flew them over Baghdad with the exact timing, the exact weapon, weapon settings, um, airplanes going exactly where they're supposed to go all over that to get rid of that first night. And I remember there was a high level of tension, you know, a high level of um, focus, people on edge leading up to those days. We, we knew it was coming. We just didn't know exactly when. So we had everything planned out to the minutest detail. And on that first night, it went off pretty much exactly as they planned. And then uh, we looked at each other and went, oh, hey, there's going to be another night. Hey, there's a night too. Hey, what, what do we do? You know, and we, so we started uh, and we, we ran into what's called just a normal planning routine. There's a, a planning cell, mission planning cell, probably has 10 pilots in it, uh, led by a lieutenant colonel who's, you know, got a lot of experience. Um, on the first night of the war, I was not assigned to fly. And I, I was still too... I guess um, I was definitely intent on helping any way I could. So I went into the mission planning cell, but I wasn't scheduled to do that. I wasn't assigned. And uh, the, the lieutenant colonel in charge, his name was uh, Vooter. I call him Vooter. That was what we called him. And uh, Vooter kind of looks around the room and says, hey, there's a lot of people in here, and I know you're not all scheduled. So if you're not supposed to be here, I kindly ask you to leave. And not one person left. I just sat there like, okay, well, then, you know, nonchalantly, Vooter uh, comes up to me and he's like, hey, Merge. I'm like, yeah, he's going to kick me out. He goes, the colonel's going to be here in a few minutes and the trash is looking a little full. So would you mind uh, emptying the trash out? So like my, my role on the first night of the war was literally sitting in the mission planning room, emptying the trash so that it would look nice for the colonel when he came in. And by the way, I think, you want the room to look nice, right? We're we're professional. Right. We want to make sure right. things are things are in order. Um, 
And I went what, down to you, the flight were, line. Were, were you a captain at, or a major at that time? Uh, I was a captain. Yeah. I, okay. I never pinned on major on active duty. So I was uh, still a fairly young and experienced captain. I just finished my mission commander upgrade training and uh, I was anxious to participate and help. Um, as the first days of the conflict went on, I did get assigned into the mission planning cell. It's been a few nights there. And then it was my turn to go get ready to fly. So uh, you pop out of mission planning, you go home and rest, someone else plans your mission, and then you come in for a um, practice run. So you actually still, they still do the practice run, but they do it in the simulator. So they plug in Baghdad or wherever it is. You, uh, you then are going to run that two, maybe one hour, maybe two hours, just of the combat run. And then you uh, go home and get your rest, come back and, and uh, there's probably a two to three hour mission briefing where they tell you the targets, the objectives, they give you that. Uh, it's a giant book, actually. It's a really thick book of information, which includes everything you need to safely navigate yeah, all the passcodes to get in and out of different countries on the way there. And then, uh, and then everything you need to know if something goes wrong, you know, um, uh, survival, escape and evasion tactics and, and, and resources. They, they review it all with you. So in other words, uh, like what, what the local flora and fauna is yep, in, in that particular region, where to hide, where, where do they give you information on like where other units are that could help like friendlies, things like that? Oh gosh. You know, I, at this particular time, I don't remember that, but I think it's because um, if you think about it, we're, we're still in the phase before any kind of ground troops have rolled in. So in, well, there were ground, there were ground down, troops. There, there were certainly ground troops in there. It's just, well, yeah, I'll put it this not way. conventional. The location of those troops was not, we, we did not have a need to know, right? So that wasn't going to be re revealed to us. But uh, if we were on the ground, need to know would probably change, and we'd get, we'd get that information as needed. We had secure radios, so we could actually send, uh, at the time, it was you know so long ago, but we could send rudimentary text messages secure by satellite uh, back and forth and uh, had, had voice capabilities secure also if we did get shot down. So there were lots of resources figured out to help us um, so here's a crazy question that I, I don't even know the answer to. So just don't judge me when I ask this. Yeah, I, I, I might not either. Uh, I, I, I would think the answer is no, but we'll find out. Um, so you typically hear of like U2 pilots with a little like poison pill that they have. Uh, Did oh, you yeah. have anything like that? Well, they gave us a gun with one bullet. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, that probably wasn't a sensitive joke. Um, we, we didn't have anything like that. The goal for us was to, uh, to complete the mission and survive and, and do it honorably. Now, did, did they give you any, you hear about these go pills. Did you have anything yeah. like that? Oh yeah. Um, uh, yeah. In fact, I remember specifically not using them and not for, you know, moral reasons, um, I've read some articles about, um, you know, the media often misinterpret what's going on. Um, and, you know, hey, these guys had go pills and it made them more aggressive. And that's why they made these mistakes and killed innocent people. And you're like, that's not really how it works. Um, it, it makes you a little more alert, a little more, uh, um, you, you know, you, that's, I think focus. that's it. Just alertness, focus. It's, they're, they're, they're appropriate for the right time. I found myself on this mission and our, our mission was 36 hours. It was about 18 in and 18 back. And um, most, most B2 pilots make the mistake. They're, you're just so excited. You know, you're like, your mind is wrapped up and you're, you're going to fly into a situation where you could be killed, uh, where you could hurt innocent people uh, inadvertently. Um, or at the very least, if you're successful, you're going to, um, you're going to do a lot of damage to uh, enemy uh, equipment and uh, capabilities. And so they're just excited. Um, I took the approach and I, I was flying with my squadron commander. Um, and I told him, if you're, I'm going to fly as long as you want me to fly. But if you get in the seat next to me, I'm going to get out. 
and I'm going to rest. So during my 18 hours over, I spent quite a bit of time in the back reading magazines and stretching out. And I did some, you know, light, light exercises and I slept. And, uh, and I did that because I have heard that most pilots for the first 18 hours, they're so, they're so wound up that they just both stay in the seat, focused all the way there, all the way across the target. And then once they're coming off target, they both have this huge letdown. And I, I wanted to avoid that. So I, I took the approach, I'm going to try to stay relaxed and be fresh when we come off target. And, and it worked really well. So um, my crewmate, uh, he was able to get some rest, three or four hours of rest, actually. And then I was able to switch out and rest. And I didn't want to take the go pills during that time because I knew in a couple of hours I was going to need to sleep. And if I had just taken a couple of those go pills, I might, I might not get the rest I needed. So um, I may have set the record for the most sleep during a 36-hour stealth combat mission. I probably have it. I probably still have it, actually. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. I was just uh, proactive in managing it. Here, here's another morbidly curious question. Uh, you were on a flight for 36 hours. Yeah. Like, is, there, is there like a bathroom on board? Yeah, there's a there's a place to it's a it's a little potty in the back, and uh, you don't use it you kind of you don't you don't use it for your your ordinary um, liquid use because you don't want to fill it up. So uh, we had um, typical uh, Air Force issue uh, piddle packs, which is a little plastic bag with some of them have a, um, a sponge, but most of them have a little um, um, powdered um, agent that when it gets wet, it turns into a gel. So you, 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 I don't know if you're familiar with those, but you pee into them and then it turns into a solid and it doesn't drip out. It's kind of hygienic and sanitary. And we use that for most of our business. And, you know, I, I think, I don't think I ever used this sitter. You know, I never actually had to sit down and, and take care of business that way. Maybe on that mission, but I just don't remember. I blocked it out, blocked it out. <laughs> Yeah, we weren't we weren't so fancy in the army. We just well, you know, we, there wasn't room in your in your hardware to accommodate that. Uh, yeah, well, not 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 like a latrine, but not inside the tank. Yeah, yeah, but there's plenty latrine. of pl- 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 a lot a lot more a lot more room to do our business because it's just the natural environment. But uh, yeah, you just you can just step outside, top a squat. All right, um, so. You you mentioned that you did these practice runs over Midwestern cities or a mid- uh-huh. Midwestern city. I don't even know if you identified the city or not. I can't remember. No, so not, not in our gonna... conversation. I can't really remember which one it was. I think it was like Sioux City, Iowa. It was like someplace within an hour's flight of Whiteman. And, uh, you know, we'd fly over the city. I remember the, the, the city lights out there. And, you know, we just kind of do the dance in the sky above those guys. Actually, well, the reason I remember I, that, I don't remember if I was in, in one of those. I know that I did large force exercises over Midwestern cities. I can't remember if I was, I know I wasn't in those night one practice runs because I wasn't scheduled for night one. Well, the reason I ask is years ago, and I don't know if you'll even remember this, but you said that every time you guys would fly one of those practice flights, people would report UFO sightings. Is that oh. accurate? Uh, gosh, you know, I've said a lot of things that I don't, but, but you, but you never said it in a way that I thought that the impression I had when you said it was that the UFO sightings they were reporting, uh, was, you know, was you guys, not yeah, that there yeah. was, uh, people have asked, I just don't, UFOs are kind of an interesting thing. I've seen some stuff recently in the news about them and I'm like, man, there's, there's some compelling evidence that that something, some, you know, there's some pretty powerful um, technology out there from someone that I don't know who it is. But uh, when when I flew, um, uh, you know, I guess I, I, I one time uh, in, in an engineering conference they asked me, have, "Have I ever seen a UFO?" And my response was, "I am a UFO, right?" <laughs> and and so um, it, it's very very possible that people report UFOs when the stilts are flying, but most of the stuff that we did was at such high altitude that it would be 
um, and at night, unlikely that that uh, that your your regular folks down on the ground would even know we were there. Mm-hmm. Now, in the course of your military career, have you ever seen anything that you know in the skies that you would identify as a UAP? Um, yeah, you know, an, just, unidentified aerial phenomena, you know, whatever it is, something you just couldn't explain. There were there were two instances that come to mind. The first one is um, when I was flying the F-16 over southern Iraq. It was a, uh, a no-fly zone enforcement mission. We, it was a large, large group of um, coalition aircraft pushed in. And this is Operation we were, Desert Fox? This was before, Desert Fox was before, no, Desert Fox happened after this. So this was, this was, this was before Desert Fox. It was a time when there was relative calm between the, uh, the U.S. and the Iraqis. There hadn't been a lot of open hostilities and we were just patrolling the no-fly zones. And, uh, but this particular day. Was this an F-16 or stealth bomber? Yeah. F-16, broad daylight. Okay. Broad daylight. And I was number four of the four ship. I was the furthest north on the far right-hand side. And, uh, and I, I, so, you know, I, I look out the left to see my formation. And when I looked out the right um, of the aircraft, which thinking back now, I'm proud of because, you know, single seat fighter pilots are supposed to have a, a, a clearing pattern to identify um bogeys or hostile aircraft i looked out to the right where there shouldn't be anyone and i just saw these bright lights um off my wing i can't remember a little high or a little low but just out a mile or two off to the to the right and i just wondered like gosh those look like flares they look like flares to me um but i knew there was no friendly aircraft over there and i and i knew if there was a hostile aircraft it was close enough that we would have had we would have been engaged with it um and so i just thought man what what is that and it it, it wasn't until years later that i i wondered if it wasn't you know um visually aimed anti-aircraft fire or something like that where you know they they were shooting up at us but without without any kind of radar guidance um just sort of taking looking for a lucky shot on us. Um, so that's the first one. Uh, the second one was in the stealth at night. And, uh, and it was, I can say that it was not in us airspace, but I really can't, I really can't discuss any more about like what it was. So, okay. But it, it 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 could have been of extraterrestrial origin. It could have also been of terrestrial origin. Most likely, it was uh, yeah some uh, a human uh, right. phenomenon, human generated phenomenon. Um, but I really can't it, because of the sensitive nature of the context of the situation. I really can't talk more about it. But it was it was such that it was it happened so fast that you really didn't get a, a, an opportunity to, a, you know, to actually yeah. see it or classify it. So in other words, it, and when I say so fast, it's not that it was, it was moving so fast. It was just, you recognized the, the phenomena. We were like, Oh, what is that? And then, yeah. What, what, yeah. Um, hmm, that's, you know, uh, our sensors aren't picking it up. No one's telling us about it. And, and there's a, and there's something flying in our vicinity that, that, uh, wasn't supposed to be there. Okay. All right. I won't push on that anymore. I just, wanted to... <laughs> <laughs> but that one, like the likelihood that that was, that was, uh, non-terrestrial is very low. Let's just say. I think, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. The first, the first incident you reported though, sounds more like it's, you know, a closer to 50, 50. I just don't know. It was like I'm flying over Iraq. I'm looking out the window. I'm like, I, I know I can see bright lights out there in broad daylight, but I don't know what they are, where they came from. Was um, it like a flash, or did they, or were they, were they, was it more sustained? No, they were sustained. It was like, man, what is that? You know, like hmm. um, staying in the air. Um, but I've, 
like I said, I've, I've heard that flares do that. I think that anti-aircraft artillery, you'd see, you'd actually see um, some black smoke or something like that. Yeah, you would see some smoke. With flares, you would see like a descending arc. Is that what you, you saw? Might. You might. Um, I don't. I don't remember seeing that. That's the funny thing, right? Is like I just remember seeing like four, three, four, or five of these bright lights in the sky, kind of spaced out, as though something had ejected flares. But I, that you know, my situational awareness at the time was there are no aircraft over there, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it was. All right. Well, I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you what you think it is, but because you don't know. <laughs> I mean, you, it sounds like you don't know. You just, just yeah. don't know. Don't know. Yeah. Did you report it? I don't remember. You know, like <laughs> probably <laughs> you get back to the ground and they they ask you everything that happened and it seemed like something I would have brought up, but I don't remember. Okay. All right. Yeah. And, and I I imagine if it raised any alarm or concern, you would definitely remember it, right? If somebody like came and said, "Well, remember the thing you said? Like what? Yeah. Can you tell us a little oh, yeah, more?" Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, no one followed up with me. I just and I may not have brought it up. I just it's just one of those vague memories that I was like, "That's weird." You know, I don't know what that is. And uh I I remember not reporting it on the radio. I remember just kind of cuz we tried to keep radio radio quiet when we were when we were in bad guy land. And so uh yeah. Uh, I mean Maybe it was another uh, coalition aircraft that ejected some flares that I just didn't see, but it was awfully close for that for that to be the case. Um, and uh, maybe it was ground fire. I just don't know. Do you recall the size, the relative size, or I guess you couldn't really judge distance or anything like that? No, yeah. I mean, it was a mile or two off my right wing, and I thought I thought for sure it was flares, but I just couldn't figure out like who's over there. Because to my recollection, I was the furthest, furthest, should have been furthest north in that particular situation. And there wasn't, there wasn't any reason for anything else to be over there, but there was. Were there any allied forces like the Brits or anybody else in, in theater at the time? The way I remember this particular day, I think it was, was a larger force package. But like I said, we, we, we knew where everybody was, right? We had our, our assigned areas and responsibilities. And this was... Um, an area where there shouldn't have been anyone else. Hmm. So it was probably the Navy. Now that I think about it, because you know the, the the Navy's famous for being where they're not supposed to be. <laughs> well, I mean, was it near the water or was it like no. in the desert? No, no, we were we were we were multi, multiple miles into you know past the no fly zone, um, and uh, yeah. So, but the Navy they. You know they they operate in those same airspace. You know that we all work together. We're all friends. Yeah, they would still they would still tell you, right? Well, if they if they knew where they were. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure whether or not you're serious right now. <laughs> yeah, I I'm actually a little serious. Yeah, maybe they they just fly by a different set of rules. No, not lost, but they 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 don't necessarily. Uh, follow the same strict um, protocols that the Air Force is, is used to. You know, the, the Navy's a little more, um, hey, go where, you, go where you need to, when you need to. So, so, so it kind of sounds like the Marine Corps. Yeah, yeah. It's just I, a little, spe- I, little special, little special. I feel, like I'd, I feel like I'd fit right in in the Navy. I, I think I would have had a great time flying with those guys. So Yeah, I, yeah, I don't... Uh... Yeah, I don't think I could say the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I tried, but like the last, like the last test, like my head just couldn't fit in the jar, man. I, I yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just kidding. I love Marines. They're, 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 they're the best. We, we fought. We, we um, trained with them at the National Training Center, and they were, they were always fun. So awesome. Uh, any advice to stealth bomber aspirants? Uh, if you're if you're a person who wants to wants to fly a military combat platform, um, I don't have a lot of like. The, there's going to be all kinds of you know the modern like way to get in, the way to succeed, and all that. The rules probably changed so much since I did it that 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 I wouldn't have a lot of advice for that. But I would say 
figure out what they're looking for, you know, understand the criteria and then just be relentless in making sure that you meet those criteria better than anyone else. And if you're willing to do that and you're physically qualified, your chances are pretty good. So it surprises me how many people give up when they see something is really hard. Mm -hmm. You know, they'd say, well, the chances of getting into a military flying slot, I don't know what they are, one in a hundred, one in a thousand. Well, that's only because most people give up. Of the people who are qualified and relentlessly focused on it, the chances of success are very high. And so I think that's my best advice is if it's something you want to do, um, put your mind to it and then get to work. It's basically the same advice one would give to somebody who's trying to be a writer or trying to start a YouTube channel. Yeah, or open a, open a small pizza place or, uh, or get into Harvard Business School. That's you right. Know, they say they accept like one out of nine applicants at Harvard Business School. But the, the truth is of the people who take the time to understand the criteria, who then um, prepare themselves for it and who are uh, determined, I bet the admissions is 75% or higher. It's just that most people don't really figure out, they don't spend the time to figure out what are the rules of the game and then how do I, how do I play so that I win? Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you can figure out the rules of the game you're playing in and then, and then do it, you're going to do fine. All right, my friend. Uh, I appreciate your time on uh, yeah. telling people about your experiences because there's not very many stealth bomber pilots or former stealth bomber pilots. So thank you for your service to the country as well. Thank putting you. Your, putting your life in harm's way, literally. So um, yeah. anyway, I'm looking forward to talking to you about our, our next topic. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time.